large software companies have lots of users, and the activity from those users results in high volumes of traffic. These companies also have a large surface area across the enterprise. There are hundreds of services and databases that are fulfilling user requests across a large enterprise. Take a company like Airbnb. As the requests enter the infrastructure of a company like Airbnb, the requests will travel through the different services and result in database queries, payments, and other transactions, and will finally result in somebody booking a place to stay. And these transactions also result in the generation of log messages. The log messages tell the story of what is happening across the entire infrastructure at the company. Log messages can provide valuable data for security and site reliability engineering. But analyzing a high volume of log data requires a scalable system that can account for that high volume. Jack Naglieri is the CEO of Panther Security. He previously worked at Airbnb, where he helped develop a system called Stream Alert. At Airbnb, log messages are buffered into distributed queuing systems like Kafka or Kinesis. And then they're written to bucket storage systems, like S3. These logs are processed by AWS Lambda functions that test the log messages for rules defined by a system operator. Jack left Airbnb and started Panther Security to generalize the tools that he built within Airbnb and build a company around the same ideas. Jack joins today's show to discuss modern logging infrastructure, his work at Airbnb, and his experience building Panther. Jack Naglieri, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. You were at Airbnb for two and a half years. What were the canonical security problems at Airbnb? What were the problems that you saw on a recurrent basis? Yeah, I think it's the problems that every company faces that's going through hypergrowth and it's starting from zero. I mean, you'll see a lot of really sophisticated companies that don't really have really any security program, you know, but they've made a lot of revenue and they've grown significantly. And now it's time to, you know, get serious about security and like start building this program out. So the canonical problem is always just like, how do we make sure that we're covered in all these critical areas and we are gathering the right data and we're really understanding everything that's happening in the business and in our technology infrastructure. Believe it or not, you'd probably be really shocked if you knew like <laughs> the state of a lot of security programs in the industry, like for certain apps that we would use every day, for example, you know, like they're still very immature, their security programs. So in what way saying that, say more about that, like what, in what ways are they immature? It's such an understaffed field. So a lot of people just fall behind naturally and the business doesn't prioritize it until they really need to, you know, maybe they're getting ready to go public that's generally the biggest catalyst that I've seen. Or the company operates in like a highly regulated industry, so they need to care about it early on. But generally, it happens in the later stage. You know, you'll see a security team start to come online, then they're like, okay, like, what's our engineering org doing? How is our cloud environment set up? And I'm speaking more for like modernized, like cloud age companies, you know, like the more monolithic, larger companies already have like super established security teams that are probably like, you know, in the hundreds like Facebook, Google. When I worked at Yahoo, it was like that as well. We had like close to 100 people. But for these more modernized, hyper-growth unicorns, it takes them generally a little bit longer because it's not something they prioritize. Actually, when I joined Airbnb, it was kind of like that, right? I joined in 2016, and Airbnb was just like starting to become more mainstream and was right. really picking up. And that's when they had like the $25 billion valuation. And they were kind of like speeding into the mainstream. And I guess as the business, you know, they hired the director of security who started hiring out all these other managers to say like, okay, we need to focus on this and this. And, you know, we need to start doing uh, game rate for our compliance. And it's just like the normal things a company does to prepare for an IPO. And at that point, their software was, I imagine, a highly scaled Rails app that was held together with duct tape and chicken wire. <laughs> and they're just trying to figure out simultaneously how to keep the lights on and how to add some better security practices. Yeah, I mean, the company had a lot of established engineering practices and procedures and it had built all these great internal tools. And it was it was a really impressive team, to be honest. And, you know, like every, every hyper growth team, they, as you say, they 
kind of make what they have work for a really sustained amount of time. And then they kind of go back and fix it. Like Twitter did that as well. Like Twitter rewrote like their whole platform into from a Rails app into like Java microservices. And I'm sure Airbnb is probably doing the same thing now. And then it's kind of like that with security too. You know, you do all these things and then you kind of go back, clean it up. And then, you know, you prevent anything bad from happening in the future. What were the different areas of security that that security executive hired into? What were the security teams that he established when he was forming those security teams? It's the same teams that you would see in any organization. So you'd see people focused on application security. And I feel like with Airbnb, that happened early on. So there were actually people who were doing application security, like from an earlier state of the engineering organization's life. And then as time went on, they actually split them out into like a proper security org. But people always cared about AppSec early because it's something that is really tangible and like engineers can see, you know, without the presence of a security team, like, okay, we need to care about validating input into a SQL database and things like the obvious things, right? And then as the org scales, it's more like, okay, let's think about dedicating people towards compliance and cloud security, you know, like making sure that we're upholding like CIS. And, you know, if we have to, if we have standards for PCI that we have to uphold, like making sure that we focus there and then moving more into incident response, which is the field that I specialized in uh, when I was a practitioner, you know, it was like, are we collecting the right data? Do we understand what's happening in the systems and getting an understanding of what normal is? And you just start to focus on all these different areas in security. So you have like product security. So people focus on the application itself. And then you have like incident response and then you have compliance. And I think like those are probably the main ones. And there's like a bunch of other areas you can focus on. It really depends on like the nature of the company and the product and what your assets are. And what, like data security is another really popular one too. Tell me about the incident response side of things. So how does an incident get discovered what are the data streams that contribute to discovering that incident? And how does a alert get created? How does it get propagated through the organization? Yeah, that's a good question. So there's a lot of different ways. I mean, the basis of good detection and response is really having a rich set of data that will essentially let you know what's happening in all these different important areas. And you use that data to create rules to say, okay, we expect, you know, from our logins, for example, we expect that only engineers should be able to log into our systems. We expect that certain files should exist in certain places. And, you know, you can kind of like define and pattern what normal is. And then when anything outside of that happens, you get some ping to your team, whether it's like a Slack or a PagerDuty or whatever. You flag to your your instant responders like, hey, something suspicious is happening. And you can do rule-based detection. You can do machine learning, AI, you can do like more like cutting edge stuff, which in my opinion is probably not the greatest place to start just because of the false positive rate, but just kind of like a personal opinion. And then we have, you know, indicators of compromise, like you can buy IOCs from certain vendors like SecureWorks, there's open source IOCs you can use. And an indicator of compromise is basically, you know, if you see the presence of an MD5 hash, which is like a, a file hash, on one of your laptops or one of your servers and you you know might have this type of malware which would lead to this type of compromise so you can do the pattern matching like that which also can be highly false positive prone so it's essentially the combination of all these techniques is what goes into like a well-rounded detection program so you'd look at indicators you use maybe some ai and ml you'd use some deterministic based rules and a lot of the deterministic based rules i think are based off of like the company's specific business logic because everyone's infra is different and everyone's going to have like slightly different implementations of how their engineering team works and what normal is for them so i think it's important to like build that into whatever tool that you're going to use for detection and historically the way that this is done is i mean the most popular way right now in my opinion is people just using like splunk or Elasticsearch and kind of just feeding it into there and then building on top of it more Historically, it was within a SIM, which is just security information and event management. So you would feed all this all this log data from like your laptops, your servers, your networks, any of this helpful context that could be used for security detection. You would feed it into this box or this appliance, and then it would tell you what it thought was bad. But the issue with that, and I think 
you'll pretty rarely see that in Silicon Valley companies, like in, in higher tech companies. Like the issue is that they have trouble scaling. They don't provide enough flexibility in how you want those detections to work. Like they're highly opinionated. And I think, you know, as an engineer here in the Valley, like people want to be empowered to create these detections themselves. And that's really what led to like us building Streamalert at Airbnb. Like that experience really shaped how we wanted to think about it going forward. And when we joined Airbnb, you know, like I, I was brought in as an engineer, but my manager at the time, you know, he had also come from a larger tech company. He was from Facebook. I was from Yahoo. And then someone else was from like Dropbox, you know, and we had all this experience with like with scale and knowing what works and what didn't. And we knew we wanted to do something fresh and kind of take all these learnings that we had from like the old world and kind of like bring it into something fresh and new. Let's talk a little bit more about the tooling that you built at Airbnb. So Airbnb has a high volume of traffic that's coming through it. And you built a tool at Airbnb called StreamAlert to deal with the classification analysis and alerting based off of that high volume of data. Explain what StreamAlert does. Yeah. So StreamAlert, the way I always described it, is a serverless real-time data analysis framework. And we released it at Enigma Security Conference in 2017. And it's essentially a way for a small team to do security monitoring in a cloud-based environment at a really high scale. And the challenge that we always had before was like, if you wanted to consume like 10 terabytes of log data a day into Splunk, you're going to go through a lot of pain of just even operationalizing that, you know? My manager at the time, his name is Jordan McReynolds, he had this idea of, you know, utilizing Lambda. So he was like, you know, we can build, we can build a pipeline on top of AWS Lambda, which is a serverless service from Amazon. And the way that that works is that you, you write the application code, you upload it to Lambda, and then Lambda runs it for you. Serverless is obviously taken off in the industry and it's extremely popular now. But at the time we were like, yeah, we can really use this for a security application and we can accomplish, you know, the monitoring problem while using Python instead of, you know, a DSL like the Splunk DSL or Apache Lucene, which is what is powered by Elasticsearch, or Elasticsearch uses for its search language. Uh, so we wanted to really provide flexibility and scale into our monitoring stack. And that's really what the basis of that project was. What purpose did Lambda serve? So Lambda hosted the application itself. So the way that Streamlayer works is that it's a collection of Lambda functions that serve a certain purpose. So we have a Lambda function that would do like classification of data to say, okay, this is a OS query log, or this is a CloudTrail log from AWS. And then, you know, there'd be another Lambda function that, you know, maybe sends the alert out to, you know, your Slack or your PagerDuty. And then there's another Lambda function that helps like clean the data up and things like that. So it's essentially a way to create the different microservices that collectively are an application. So you can pass through data through all the different lambdas and you can mix and match them in all these different ways. You can connect them with queues. I mean, it allows you to build like a more complex architecture with little overhead. And that's really the benefit. So help me understand this. You know, let's say a user is buying a reservation on Airbnb. And when they buy that reservation, the request is going to propagate through a bunch of backend services. Those backend services are all going to create log messages. Those log messages presumably are going to make their way through StreamAlert somehow? So I can't really explain in that level of depth how it works because of operational security. Oh, but sure. I mean, okay. the, way, the way I'll, I'll speak more generally about it is there's a lot of different data sources that we collected internally. And it really depends on what your goal is with monitoring, right? It's like, do you want to detect application-based attacks? Because if so, then yes, you would want to take an approach like how you just described. But there's a lot of other rich data sources that have data generated from that same event. So for example, if someone's just generating traffic to the platform or as a result of that, the application is doing something, that generates log data as well. So maybe to take it a step further, you would say, based off of a request for a reservation or for a booking, you know, that generates an actual database call. We can monitor the database calls too. We can say the database call came from this application and it ran this query. And we know that that's normal and that's expected. 
But if for some reason, a database query was issued from some random place, that's the type of activity we want to monitor. And I think the application level contexts are probably more specific only for application security engineers. Because for me, as the incident response engineer, I don't really have the full context of like how those requests should be handled and what the responses should be. Because I don't have the, I'm not an application developer, I don't have that context. But I can understand at a lower level that, you know, database queries should be coming from a certain place. And those are the types of things that we would look at as a as an incident responder. Let's say I want to instrument my database so that all of the queries into that database are the log messages that are generated from those database access requests are going to be put through stream alert. What do I need to do to configure that to make it a reality? I mean, at the end of the day, and Panther is the same way as this, but you just need to get it into the AWS ecosystem somehow. So if it's a native AWS database, like you're in luck because, you know, there's a lot of native tooling that we can just use already to feed it into like either S3 or into Kinesis or something else that could get picked up by our Lambda functions. And that's another huge benefit of developing in Lambda is that you're already plugged into the rest of the AWS ecosystem. But that's also kind of the downside too. It's like if you wanted to take a database that's on-prem or in a different cloud, I mean, you'd have to feed it into AWS in some way. And there's a ton of tools that help you do this. Like you could use like Logstash or FluentD or some type of message bus. And that's fairly trivial to set up. But the whole premise is just like get it into the ecosystem and then we can use Lambda functions to consume it. Got it. So the idea is log messages generated from some point in your infrastructure and you get the logs shuttled to some place where they're aggregated and organized. Yeah. And then you can run Lambda functions over them. The Lambda functions are executing, in the case of StreamAlert or in Panther, the company that you've you've built, executing the Lambdas, which are, as I understand, Python scripts that are analyzing the traffic for rules that you've created? Yeah. So in StreamAlert, everything's written in Python. In... Panther, everything's written in Go, except for like one Lambda function. <laughs> but all the others are in, in primarily in Golang. And when we started the company in 2018, that was one of the first things that I wanted us to focus on is just, you know, we're doing stream processing and Go is just a better choice for that, in my opinion, just because it performs better. And it's a compiled language, so, you know, and it's statically typed, so there's, there's a ton of safety benefits as well. But... We made the choice to do Streamler in Python. I mean, for one, that was really one of the only options at the time. Golang actually wasn't even supported in Lambda, so and none of us were Java developers, which was the alternative. It was either like Python, Java, or Node. So Python seemed like the obvious choice. And also the industry itself, the security industry, is like somewhat fluent in Python. And that was actually the reason why we chose that for the rules language. So the actual Python rules that you would write as an analyst, it's written in a, as a Python function. Mm. And you say, like, given some input, let's do some logic. And then if we return true, that means we should fire an alert. Let's say we have a set of office networks and we're monitoring the, the SSH traffic. So someone remotely connecting to a box, to a, to a server or something, right? And we can say all of our engineers are in this office network. So we should only ever expect the logins to come from there. So you can basically put in a list, like, these are the office networks. Did someone log in from outside of this list? If so, generate an alert. And that type of logic is helpful, and people understand that. Engineers understand that. The one downside is that you do have some teams that aren't writing any code at all. So that can be a little bit challenging. But generally, like, there's enough examples, and Python is an easy enough language to where you can kind of hack through that, and you get the benefit of being able to use a, a scalable platform. Right. So this is one thing I found interesting about it is you're building a security tool that there's a fair amount of custom configuration that the user is going to have to do to create rules for their specific application. What kinds of rules are you scanning your log messages for? Because, you know, maybe you're trying to scan for logins from outside of a, of a certain uh, geo, or you're trying to scan your log messages for 
PDF files because you want to know if PDFs are being opened across the organization because those things result in malware. And the idea is that these rules are going to be written by a technical analyst in in many cases. Maybe somebody who is somewhere in between the technical level of a software engineer and like an operations person. Can you tell me more about who is that person? What is that role, this security analyst role that who would be writing rules like this? Yeah, it's primarily people who focus on detection. So generally the way that this would work is they would just dig through log data and try to pick out patterns or try to identify log files themselves that are suspicious, quote unquote, air quotes, you know, suspicious. And a lot of it is like, I mean, that's generally called like threat threat hunting. So there's analysts who comb through data that way. You know, you can use the techniques that I was mentioning before where you have like lists of indicators and you're continually comparing that against logs. And then if you get hits there, then you can do more custom-based triage to say, okay, we got a hit on an IP address, like some network traffic occurred to this malicious IP address in this, you know, random country. Let's go back and, and look through the logs to see like what was happening in the system at that time. So that's a common thought process an analyst would have. And the whole goal with StreamAlert and then subsequently with Panther was to automate that process to say, okay, we can build in indicators into the detection platform. We can build in all this intuition that an analyst would have and patterns they would want to look for. We can just predefine it into a Python rule and then we'll have a system continually scanning logs as they come in in real time. And that's really like the type of person. So it's just an, a normal sort of detection analyst, like someone who's familiar with doing breach investigation and maybe forensics to an extent, but most likely just doing threat hunting and incident response. So this kind of security tool where you're giving the user the freedom to engineer their own rules that are going to be evaluating log messages or just evaluating data across the platform, if we were to generalize it, can you help me understand how does this fit into the mindset of a security buyer? Do security buyers expect a product that requires them to do some programmatic work, some some configuration work and so on? Or do they want to just buy something that's like off the shelf, you know, they take it off the shelf, they install it, and it magically solves their security problem. I'm just, I haven't done a ton of coverage on security products. So I'm just trying to understand how much configurability can customization the buyer will tolerate. Yeah, it's a good question. So the answer, I think, largely depends on the maturity of the team and how big the team is as well. So if you have one security person in the whole organization, more than likely they're just going to want to throw some product in that's fully configured and just is working. It's a little bit more complicated for a product like ours just because you really do have to tune it for your own business to really get the power out of it, right? There's a lot of generalized standards that we can write pre-built rules for, and we've done that with Panther. We like I hired a security engineer last year, and I made that his primary job is just to you know research and write rules for detection and then policies for compliance. And, you know, that's a really common ask people have is like, you know, the customization is great and everything, but what do you give me out of the box? And we say, oh, we give you about 150 rules and policies that cover CIS, they cover common S3 vulnerabilities, they cover EC2 vulnerabilities, like all these really baseline checks that everyone should really be doing in any organization. And then the beauty with Panther and StreamAlert is that, you know, you can just author your own. You can write your own detections on top. But, you know, the work that we've done at Panther in the last, you know, year or so is really helping those teams just going from zero to one, saying like, hey, here's a pack of rules and policies. This will get you going. And then now you can start to build on top and you can tune them and customize them for your own needs. Can you walk through the mental progression that you went through when you decided you'd been working on security tooling at Airbnb for more than two and a half years, right? Like, you yeah, were, about, the, about then. Yeah. So you were there for two and a half years. 
When did you start to realize that the problems you were solving were generalizable and perhaps this is something that you should turn into a company? Yeah, it's interesting because I started to think about my next steps in 2018. And as I started to entertain options, I just found that kind of the same thing was happening in other startups. So other hyper growth companies, as you can imagine, there's a lot in the Bay Area started reaching out to me. And I think as a security engineer, like if I think you're highly sought after if you're a security engineer and if you do detection and you can write code, you're highly valuable as an engineer, especially here in Silicon Valley. But I began to realize that, you know, like everyone has this problem. And I really knew that for a while, you know, and we have this bad tendency here in the Valley to just build everything. And I think that's most likely what I would have been doing if I had gone to another company. So I think the idea was really like, let's build something that has a company behind it. You know, we have engineers dedicated full time to it because with, with StreamAlert, there's not people who are fully dedicated to that project. I mean, I, I don't know how it is today because I've sort of disconnected from it. But when I was at Airbnb, I mean, I ran the team of engineers that was directly responsible for the project. And myself, I, I was that person for a long time. Like my manager and I, we were the main people on the project, but I was the head engineer on it. And I would work with other engineers in the company. And then, you know, we eventually grew our team. And then I stopped writing code and handed it to the team and just sort of managed the health of the team and everything in the higher level direction. But the thing with Panther was like, I wanted to start a company that was fully dedicated to just working on this problem. And I guess I'll talk about in a second, like giving the project out for people to use in all these other companies so they don't have to build it themselves. So there is something reliable that they can just stand up in their AWS account that gives them all these benefits of, you know, being able to scale and do, you know, effective detection in a more mature platform and in a mature way. So if I understand the the chronology correctly, you had built StreamAlert at Airbnb. It was open source. And when you realized that this was a generalizable problem, you decided to start from scratch when you started Panther and build something similar to StreamAlert, but you just got to, to write everything from scratch. So it was a little bit of a cleaner implementation with all the knowledge that you had learned working on StreamAlert at Airbnb. Yeah, that's essentially it. I mean, we really loved the idea and the, the StreamAlert project itself was really successful. And a lot of people in the industry really, really had a lot of use out of it. So, you know, we knew that there was something there. And when I started Panther, we wanted to really just start from scratch and kind of just rebuild from the ground up and then rethink about the problem a little bit deeper. And, you know, I've talked with a lot of other security teams in the Bay since then. And, you know, we've gone through a lot of iteration internally and tried to figure out, you know, like what's the best product to really bring to market and to bring back into the community. And that's what we're focused on this year is our going to market. So it's kind of a good segue, but we're going to be open sourcing our platform soon. We're moving into a model that is, you know, we, we, we have the core of Panthers open source and the essence is really the same. It's like a flexible, modern cloud native SIM is how I market it. So, you know, it's a platform that a team can stand up in their account that will allow them to do real time log analysis and allow them to do compliance as well, which is somewhat that's unique for Panther. Streamlert doesn't really have any compliancy sort of like first class features built into it. It's more of a product of log analysis. But when we were designing Panther, we saw that that was such a common thing that we should build in, you know, like scanning resources in AWS accounts to make sure that they're compliant for with XYZ standards. And we still use Python to do that evaluation. So it's very, very similar. And then we also just have the traditional log analysis, which is like, we're looking for some activity. Let's detect that. But yeah, we really wanted to start from scratch, think about all the use cases, think about what an impactful product would be, and also learn from our experience. But the other thing about Panther that I love is that, you know, we've hired engineers from Amazon and Uber and like even from Airbnb, like we've hired people who have like sim similar experience or maybe very different experience and have approached the problem in a very different way. So. The two guys I hired from Amazon, for example, are bringing all of their knowledge into it. And that has really shaped how we built the platform. And it changed a lot of the implementation, actually, that I had built at Airbnb. So it's 
really fresh and new. And I think will end up being even more scalable in the long run than StreamAlert. So as you mentioned, this is a pretty non-standardized workflow that people are going to go through to get their logs analyzed. Because in some cases, it's going to be logs coming off a database. In some cases, it's maybe some system activity logs or logs maybe they're taking out of Datadog or something like that. Does that does that ever happen? Or is it actually standardized? Is it typically... Is there a common path that you can solve for in terms of where these log messages are getting aggregated? Or do you kind of have to do it customer by customer based on where they happen to be storing their logs? Yeah, that's a good question. So luckily, there's a lot of standardization that happens within Amazon. And I would say our primary users, I mean, the primary people that we target today are Amazon customers, like AWS users, companies that have large amounts of infra within AWS. And there's a ton of standardized tooling there that we can natively plug into with CloudFormation, which is just using infrastructure as code. And it's very trivial to onboard data. So in the ecosystem of AWS, it's easy. When you start to move onto like hybrid systems or databases, it becomes a little bit more complex, especially if you're outside of the scope of AWS, but it's still easy to do. You just have to have some type of logging pipeline in place. And a lot of companies already have this. I mean, Logstash is very ubiquitous in my opinion. Like I see that everywhere. FluentD is also very common. Some people just use Syslog itself and you know we can work with that as well. And luckily, I actually come from a background of doing this at scale. So to kind of like back up a little, when I was at Yahoo, I learned how to do DevOps at a very extreme scale because, you know, Yahoo had an insanely big infrastructure. So I had to learn how to deploy security tools to the entire infra. And then I had to learn how to aggregate all that log data back. And then that experience is what really helped me learn how to be successful in StreamAlert and then subsequently in Panther. So... At the end of the day, it's kind of a DevOps problem. You know, like, do you have instrumentation in all these places? If not, we'll guide you and help you set it up. And we've been actually, Panther, we've been writing a blog for the last three months. And we continually publish every week. And part of that is writing some of these topics that I'm talking about into a post that an engineer can digest and say, like, oh, okay, if I want to learn how to take my syslog data off of my VMs in AWS... Mm and put it in S3, this is how I could do it. And actually that's a real article that I wrote like a couple of weeks ago. And it explains the process of using Fluentd and you know taking data from log files and you know all the configuration you need to make that work. And then you know we make it a series and we say, okay, now to do a more complex version of this, you know, you can have aggregation points and you can have failover and like all these more like high availability techniques that you can do. A lot of it's kind of tribal knowledge in my opinion. You know, like setting up effective logging pipelines. It's not something that everyone's done before. So like our whole effort with the blog is trying to kind of democratize this data that's been like highly internal for so long. And we're also doing this for AWS logging too. So I have a series going, I think we've done two so far. One was on CloudTrail, which logs all the API calls into your AWS account. And then another one was on S3 bucket logging, which is every type of requests made to an S3 bucket, which as you can imagine is pretty impactful data to collect considering the amount of data breaches that have happened as a result of S3 misconfigurations. Absolutely. So we're just trying to put all this info out in the, in the open so we can empower security engineers to get a head start on all these things or maybe to teach them something new that they didn't know already. AWS has a ton of articles as well, but and they have a ton of information that's so helpful in their documentation but sometimes it's so buried in there that you, right. you wouldn't really know where to look. In terms of the market, do you feel like you're competing with any AWS logging solutions or with a Datadog? Or do you feel like this is a its own product category? I would closely relate to SIM as much as I don't like the connotation that the acronym generally has. But I think in order what, to... What is the acronym again? SIM, S-I-E-M. Security info and event management. Okay. Yeah. But I think you could also compare, like like what I was saying in the beginning, most people use Splunk and Elasticsearch for this purpose. So generally we're compared against that. But depending on where you focus in the product, so if 
you're looking at the compliance features, we would get compared against cloud security vendors like Redlock or even Evident, Evident.io, which you know was acquired by Palo Alto. It really depends on what the team is emphasizing, what they'll use the product for. But the primary purpose is for doing log analysis, in which case we're compared to traditional sims like God forbid, you know, if people are still using like these really, really older sims. But I would say primarily people just build a sim on top of Splunk. That's usually like nine times out of 10 what people are doing. Or I guess now Sumo Logic has a slightly easier platform than Splunk does. But in my mind, they're so similar. And does that differ from your product, the Panther log monitoring product? Because in the Sumo Logic or Splunk world, they're hosting your logs also, right? Like you're shoving your logs into their systems. So the Panther world is more decoupled, right? Because you're not actually storing them. You're just running analysis over their logs. And they may be able to just keep their logs in on their own cloud servers, right? They, they don't, you doesn't necessarily need to be exported. Or do I understand the product? Yeah, I'll, I'll explain it really quickly. So I think with Sumo Logic, they, they only have a SaaS implementation. So you ship them the logs, it lives in one of their servers somewhere, and then they give you a login where you can kind of go through the data. And Splunk has a similar cloud offering, but they, I think, primarily do on-prem style deployments where the data stays within the premise of the company. And that's the same model that Panther has. So with Panther, you would deploy within your one of your AWS accounts. Generally, our recommendation is you know, you create a sub-account and then you deploy Panther within that. And then that's the account where you would send all your security data to. That's the account that you would run the Panther application itself, mm-hmm. which will normalize the data, make sure it's in the correct state. It'll, it'll store it in S3 and then it will do... You know, we can use that data for compliance. We can use it for log analysis. We can also search over it historically. And that's really the area that we're going to invest more in as well, is like, how can we understand the data better? So take me through the full data pipeline from like some event that hits an application service to the log message from that service being generated to the log message being stored or just shuttled through Panther? I just want to understand the full data pipeline. Sure. Yeah, so from the source, let's just say that we're looking at security-focused applications, meaning there's tools like OS Query, which is operating system-level instrumentation. And OS Query will tell you which users do you have installed in your system, which programs you have installed, you know, like what are some running processes? It'll just gives you any sort of generalized information. And with these tools, data can really be in any format. So it could be JSON data, it could be CSV data, it could be some random custom format. You know, with the case of Syslog, for example, that could be literally whatever the administrator configures it to be. So there can be a lot of challenges there. But the first step in the pipeline is really just normalization, taking the data and putting it all in JSON. And the reason we have to do that is because all of the rules, they take in a event argument, and then we write rules on it, and it expects it to be in a certain format. So we need to be normalized first as JSON, then we can write our rules on it, and then we can generate alerts. But the, the way the pipeline works is the data is generated, it's aggregated, it's put into something that's in the AWS ecosystem, whether it's a queue or an S3 bucket or a Kinesis stream. And you know the recommendation we usually have is like S3 is probably the easiest way to get all this done and most reliable. So just use S3. We pick it up from S3, we normalize it, and then we send it through a series of pipelines, like a Lambda functions, that eventually have it land into a different S3 bucket in the right format. And then from there, we do all our analysis on the data. So we batch the data, we analyze, like let's say, like a thousand lines at a time, right? And then any alerts that are generated sends into a different pipeline. And then maybe there's another fork of the pipeline that says, okay, let's let's use this for compliance. Let's scan an EC2 instance and make sure that all of these little attributes are, you know, the right setting. And that's a common compliance workflow as well. And then, you know, if there's an issue there, let's trigger another pipeline. So like the beauty with Lambda is that you can build these like really complex architectures, but the gist is, you know, data comes in, it's normalized, it's analyzed, and then alerts send off. And then 
someone, you know, gets a text or a phone call on their phone, they click a link, it opens them into the Panther UI, they can say, okay, this alert was generated, this is the full log file, and then now we can go search our logs and find even more information. And we're searching logs, the backend for that is, you know, is S3 and Athena. And, you know, we're using these normalized logs that we set up to empower that pipeline. Can you give me an example of how a customer has used it? Like maybe a customer use case that exemplifies why Panther is useful. Yeah. So I would say onboarding any AWS level log data and then immediately getting alerts from it. So let's say I was mentioning before, we have a bunch of built-in rules to the platform and let's say they're already collecting their CloudTrail data, which is like a really common use case and everyone should be doing this. So what they would do is they would, you know, they would install the Panther application in some account, they would link a S3 bucket to it and then we would start analyzing the S3 logs. And then we could immediately tell you like, oh, this activity is happening right now. And it's really from this point in time onward. And then alternatively, we can also use the same collateral data to start to scan your infrastructure to say, okay, you actually have these five S3 buckets that you should look at right now as well. These are public buckets or they're not following, they're not encrypted or, you know, other configuration we would want to check. And that's kind of how the customer journey starts. It's like we feed in one data source at a time, we see what alerts are generated, we tune the alerts, and then we add more. And that's the pattern we followed at Airbnb as well. We would start with some data, we would tune, we would write more rules, we would cover all these different use cases, and then we would move on to just onboarding more and more and more data. And the more data we collect, the more well-rounded view that we have of, of everything. The way I always explain it is like, you could do cloud-based environment data, which is like your cloud trail or your like infrastructure level logs. And then you move down the stack to like network logs. So, you know, the layer three NetFlow data, or if you have like layer seven, you know, like full information on requests going to certain websites and their arguments and cookies and like all that more rich information. And then moving down the stack further, you have like host level information. So this is stuff like OS queries, could be like databases, the things that are running the applications, which is the next level. And then applications could be like your web application. It could be like tools like OS query or Santa, which is a binary whitelisting tool that, that was developed by Google. And you take all this context and then you put it into a single place. And then that's how you sort of get the unified view of everything. So you're building tools around not just log management or log uh, log analysis, but also compliance. So if I want to be compliant for SOC 2 or PCI, there are a number of things that I need to do to achieve that compliance. And a lot of this has to do with configuration. Can you explain the connection between compliance and having the right resource configuration? Essentially, for a resource to be compliant, it follows a lot of these checklists that the compliance standards outline. So for example, there would be a standard for encryption is a really common one, right? Make sure that your data is encrypted at rest. So what we can do with our product is we can scan a bucket, we can enumerate all of the attributes on it, and then we can compare it against a policy. And a policy defines desired secure state in a way. And then, you know, we just develop a set of policies to cover all these different checks across all these different standards. And then that's how we build the case for getting a compliance certification. And those things are not built natively into AWS? Like you can't, you can't say, hey, AWS, I want... SOC 2 compliance across all my infrastructure? No, you have to do some work to get there. Mm. So AWS does have a tool called config that will help you with this, but it's the same type of premise as with Panther, right? Except with Panther, you get more customization flexibility and it's more central than config. So with Panther, you can actually scan like any number of accounts and it goes into one view, which is really helpful. And then as a byproduct of that, you also get asset inventory too. So you can kind of like go through all of your buckets and all of your accounts and you can say like, okay, like, are we failing any checks for CIS across any of our accounts? 
or do we have any buckets named XYZ? You know, it's, it's really helpful for that. But out of the box, yeah. I mean, AWS is getting better at this. Like they introduced a feature on S3 that will just block all pub- public access. And I'm not sure if that public access block aligns to like a compliance check per se, but yeah, they give some tooling, but it's still really on the engineer to do it. That cloud asset indexing that you just described. So there's a problem that I've seen in a couple companies called cloud sprawl, basically, where they have all these resources that they don't even know where they are, where they exist. They, you know, people throughout the organization have spun up databases and spun up servers. And like these things are just not centralized in one place. There's no place you can go to see what are all my assets that users across my organization have spun up on AWS. Can you describe that problem? Why is there a problem of indexing all of a company's cloud resources? Like, shouldn't there just be a place I go on AWS where I like click and like, here's everything I have? Yeah. I mean, there should be, but there's not. (laughs) And I think it's because the accounts are all very segmented in a way. And AWS is super powerful. You can do a ton within the confines of a single account. And I think that's just an area they would need to invest in at some point, and they probably will. I can't see it going on forever like this, where you know you have you know this explosion of accounts happening, and you need tooling around it. It just it hasn't really happened yet from AWS themselves, and that just ended up being a byproduct of Panther. Like we didn't really design the compliance product to say like, oh, we're going to build an asset inventory. It just kind of happened as a, as a side effect. But it's a really good side effect because now I can say like, I can write a policy that says, I only expect our users to ever exist in one of these accounts. And because you have that context across all the accounts, I think it provides you a better security control as well. Hmm. You don't have to just like deploy your rules in a single account. You can look at, you can look at all of them. Okay, so this is basically the onboarding process is, well, I guess in order to actually know whether you're compliant or not, you would have to wire the Panther compliance tool to all of your AWS accounts. Therefore, Panther is going to have a view into all those AWS accounts and know where all your resources are. Yeah, so the beauty with Panther is it's a single platform. So we, we combine the compliance and log analysis into one. And we actually use the same data for both in a way. And we have, like I was saying before, the beauty of Lambda is you can create all these really fun, complex pipelines. And that's exactly what we did. So for example, given CloudTrail data, which is all the API calls that are happening in your AWS account, we can use that for log analysis. We can also use that to say, did some resource change? And we have a separate pipeline that gets the data essentially forks into that says, okay, this log file shows that a user was created let's kick off a scan on that user and get more information. And then let's compare the output of that into our policies, which map to compliance standards. And then that can tell us if this user has too many permissions, for example. Because another common compliance check is that you don't just have an admin attached to a user directly, you'd have it within a group, or you wouldn't have it at all. I mean, having an administrator in AWS, like an administrator user is actually kind of seen as a anti-pattern. And you should use least privilege. And that's a more common security best practice, right? So that's really like the beauty with integrating. And then when you integrate, you get the context across both too. So if you get a log event that happens that says like, Jack did this thing. Now I can actually see what permissions does Jack actually have? What can he really do? And combine them into one platform with something else that was kind of new. And you see it sometimes in Sims, but we really want to invest into that integration. Let's switch the conversation to focusing on the business aspect of this, the go-to-market. Are you trying to sell entirely to cloud-native startups, or do you feel like you can also sell to enterprises that have a mix of on-prem infrastructure and are getting started with the cloud or are a year or two into their cloud product journey? Yeah, I think it's somewhat unrealistic if I was to say only cloud native companies, because I think any company of a significant scale will have both. We'll have on-prem systems and we'll have cloud-based systems. And they might even be multi-cloud. That's a common thing too, you know? Some people start dabbling in GCP because they like Bigtable. 
or they can get the benefit out of using different clouds for different purposes. So it's like big table GKE or TensorFlow. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and then with AWS, I mean, we try to focus peop on people who have large amounts of AWS infrastructure, but the beauty with logging tools is that they all natively support sending data to AWS anyway. So someone in a hybrid environment or someone in a purely AWS environment really wouldn't make a difference to me. Just as long as they have some AWS infrastructure where they can run this application, where they can run Panther itself. That's really all that matters. They can even have on-prem systems too, like laptops is a good example, right? Like laptops really don't have anything to do with the cloud. And we can configure the laptops to aggregate data into the cloud some way. Hmm. And then we can, you know, use the context outside of AWS. Hmm. So for example, like Palo Alto network firewalls or Cisco firewalls, you know, those don't live in the cloud. And I think each of those companies is working on a way to bridge into the cloud. But yeah, I think the, the scenario of having on-prem appliances and data is so common that we have to support it. And the companies who historically have been on-prem and are cloud curious or they're getting into the cloud, are they pretty adamant about wanting the security vendor to process the data on their infrastructure? Or are they open to sending the data to the security vendor? I think nine times out of 10, they want it to stay within their premise. And there's a lot of reasons. I mean, data governance is one of them. Everyone's concerned with PII getting out. And the more they can prevent that from happening, the easier they'll sleep at night kind of a thing. It depends on a lot. I mean, I think if you're a SOC 2, Type 2 certified company or you're a very established business, it's easier to convince people to send you your data. And if they're a really small team that, you know, maybe they literally don't even have the time to spin it up themselves, they would want something that's more SaaS-based. I think overall, though, I, I really feel that most teams and companies don't want to send their data outside of the confines of their AWS accounts. It just makes them more comfortable. What has the experience been like of, of developing a go-to-market strategy for a security company? Like, it seems like selling a security product is this thing where it's really hard to get going. But then once you get going, once you have some case studies or proof points, it becomes much, much, much easier. So what has been your experience of, for you know people listening who maybe are considering building a security company? Yeah. What does the playbook look like? The playbook's interesting. I think it really depends on who your buyer is or who your target audience is. I mean, for us, it's engineers, security engineers. So, I mean, that's part of the reason why we wanted to go open core. We know that a lot of engineers are going to be deploying this and using this and customizing it. And the more we can make them comfortable and empower them, I think the more successful we would be as a business because, you know, we're building enterprise features on top of the open core model, which is a very common pattern you'll see. I mean, Elastic, for example, is like the classic one, right? They had an open source project, Elasticsearch. It was Apache 2.0 licensed. And then they ended up open sourcing all of their enterprise features under their proprietary license. So, you know, that was a highly successful company. They went public and, you know, they've done well. And MongoDB is similar, right? Like they had a slightly different approach, but the same concept of let's open source our database platform and then let's let's encourage the massive adoption of it. And I think that approach, you know, has been proven to work. And, you know, we felt like there's a lot of other great benefits of that too, side effects of it. And that's, you know, you build a community and you're very transparent about what you're doing. And in security, I think that's especially important to be transparent, especially when you're processing some companies' extremely sensitive data. You want to be transparent about like, you know, the way that we're processing it, the fact that it all lives in your account. And we just want to make people as comfortable as possible. And we also felt it was just more of a scalable model to say, hey, engineer, Mr. Engineer or Mrs. Engineer, who wants to deploy us like we don't need to be the blocker for you like you can go try it right now just go download it from our website or go to our github repo download it there just get going and use it without us so i think if, you, if you're targeting engineers that's probably the best place to start is to have some flavor of open source or open core if you want to build like a more traditional security platform which you know a lot of companies do this as well it's all comes down to enterprise sales 
and just being able to kill it there and compete in the market. You had been at Yahoo for three and a half years before Airbnb. Yahoo was not a cloud native company. How did security at Yahoo compare to Airbnb? There's a lot of similarities. I mean, the structure of the security org is pretty similar. You know, you have people focused on application, you have people focused on incident response, forensics. It was definitely a bigger team at Yahoo for obvious reasons. It was a bigger company. It'd been around for like 20 years. And I think the mindset was the same though, because if you think about it, the security industry is so small, it's the same people running it everywhere. They all hop around. So I'd say it's probably the same sort of mentality everywhere, depending on if you're like at Facebook or at Stripe or, you know, some smaller growth stage company. How's your experience starting your own company compared to working for a large employer? You learn a lot. And as a founder, you have to, I don't know, you, you just have to know so many different things. You know, you have to understand how to raise money, which is really difficult. And you have to learn how to scale an organization. These are things like I still haven't really experienced firsthand yet. I mean, obviously, I raised a financing round last year and I have a lot of experience now there. And I could talk about that for a long time. But the experience is night and day. You know, it's when I was a manager, I never had the same problems. You know, managing people is always hard. You know, there's, there's a lot of complexity in, in people. And just building on those skills takes time and experience and mentorship and I think I've gotten better at that as well, but you just have to know everything. You have to know how to do anything as a founder. And that's really different, like marketing and going to market and sales and running a website, interacting with customers, pricing, fundraising, managing your board, managing the structure of the company, equity, like all these things, you know, payroll, benefits, health insurance, you know, you have to take care of your team. You have to make sure that they stay happy. You know, you have to make sure you're building the right product. You have to look at the market and you have to understand what are your competitors doing. So it's, it's a really different shift because as an engineer, I'm just like, I only care about the company I'm working for really, you know, and with the case of Streamlayer, it was a little bit different because we open sourced it and we worked a lot with other companies and we made a lot of friends that way. And we made a lot of, you know, had a lot of great relationships there and they contributed back to the project. And, you know, we would write, write customizations for certain companies and, or we would like do stuff that went into the open source to help them. But yeah, it's definitely your mind expands quite a lot at the scope. And when you start talking with potential customers and users, you start to understand what their problems are. So instead of your own problems, you're now dealing with like everyone's problems to so say like, okay, what are you struggling with? Like, what is the most important thing for you right now? And they'll say, oh, well, you know, I have this problem and, you know, I need to get compliant or I need to start analyzing our cloud data or whatever, you know, and you start to get in the minds of more teams. And I think that allows you to build a, a more well-rounded product, you know, when you have more context. It's kind of like when I hired the guys from Amazon, they're like, oh, we were doing it this way. And I was like, oh, interesting. We were doing it this way at Airbnb. And then we converge on a better solution. So the more people we can do that with, the more effective our product will be. And then thus, like, the more helpful it will be for everyone. Last question. Are there any gaps in the security market that you think someone else should go out and work on? I mean, besides the one that I'm doing, uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, don't know, I think I'd have to think about that one a little bit deeper. I mean, the funny thing is, is like some of the biggest problems today are have such simple solutions. Like don't open that PDF. Well, yeah. I mean, people are always the weakest link, right? I think there could be more work done in email. I think emails, I mean, the, funny enough, you mentioned that, but that's actually probably the most that's effective the worst way, one, right? It's the most effective, effective way to it's, compromise. That's someone. how the hospitals get ransomware. Yep. You know, that's why your, your infosec team, even at Airbnb is going to send you emails that say, Hey, don't open the PDF. Yeah. And I think there's a company, I, I met this founder when I was in Israel, I went to Israel last November and I met a ton of founders and one of them runs a company that kind of takes a, a different approach to that problem where they want to secure the actual hardware themselves. It's, I'm like blanking on the company name right now, but it's an Israeli cybersecurity company. And they want to address that problem by using like VMs that are kind of like air gapped yeah. virtually like within, or actually I think it's hardware air gapping. They do like some really cool tech there to prevent compromise from happening. So you would have like a VM that's only for your email. Right. And you'd have a VM that's only for engineering and stuff like that. Right, and then they right, can't right. really like communicate. 
So that's like their effort to address that problem. But yeah, in general, email security is a, another huge issue. I think there's some really successful companies. There's at least one really successful company. I can't remember the name, but this, yeah, this idea of like you have to go through a VM to open or maybe to even do anything in the browser. I think there are like entire browserized mm. or basically like in order to use a browser at your enterprise, you open up the browser and then you basically log into a VM and then the VM is your portal into yeah. a browser that's just running on that VM. Um, but yeah, interesting. Yeah. Jack, thanks for coming on the show. Great talking to you. Thanks for having me. 